What's going on, guys? Thank you for tuning in. This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. And today our guest is Kim Lisa Taylor from syndicationattorneys.com. Today we are discussing a lot of the legal issues that syndicators and syndication investors need to be aware of, the mistakes that they're making today, and a lot of other very important information that you need to know if you're going to be in the world of real estate syndication. For those of you who do not know, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I am a real estate investor, real estate syndicator, a busy professional, and I love talking about investing and learning about investing alongside you with all of these great industry professionals that we bring on the show. As a general comment, we talk about the state of the market in this episode. This episode was recorded before uh, some of the recent uh, drops in the stock market, but I wanted to take the opportunity to make a comment on that, that you know, we need to be, as investors, we need to not panic when you know the, the stock market is on its way down or there's, there's fear in the market. We need to remain level-headed. And like Warren Buffett says, the most important thing is to not lose money. So we need to be looking for good deals and not just panicking when the general uh, economic, you know, the news stations, all those people are telling us to panic and freak out. We need to look to good to do good deals at all times and not just sit out of whatever the market is. We need to remain level-headed. So, I wanted to take the opportunity to comment on that, you know, the coronavirus fears at least at the, the time that I'm recording this are real. I understand that. But there are good investments out there and we need to remain level-headed and keep looking for those good deals. So once again, our guest is Kim Lisa Taylor from syndicationattorneys.com. Here we go. Kim, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be a guest today. It's great to talk with you. We first met at Ultimate Partnering. Uh, you had a, a table this past year, and now we're, we're catching back up. And since then, you launched a book. What is the name of that book? I did. I did. It's How to Legally Raise Private Money. Uh, subtitle is Definitive Guide to Syndication and Raising uh, Money for Real Estate and Small Business. Perfect topic for this podcast. And before we get into the topic of the book, can you tell us about your background so that we and the listeners know uh, why you're uniquely, uniquely qualified to teach us about this? Yeah, so I've been uh, exclusively practicing securities law since, uh, you know, I, I started practicing in 2008, exclusively practicing uh, to, since 2009, so 10 years uh, prior to that, I was a real estate litigator and uh, also environmental law litigator. Um, even before that, I was an environmental consultant, so just an interesting bit of trivia, I'm licensed as a professional geologist in California. Cool. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I looked into my future when I was doing that. I was, uh, doing a, a lot of uh, soil and groundwater samples, standing behind drill rigs with a steel toe boots and hard hat, looked into my future and said, yeah, I don't think I want to keep doing this forever. And, uh, so what can I do different? Decided to go to law school. Uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do, what kind of area of, uh, practice, uh, but having come as from an environmental background, that was kind of my first stop. Um, always liked real estate, started doing some real estate litigation, but then I learned that I don't like litigation. I don't like uh, <laughs> fighting. <laughs> I don't like going to court and fighting about things. Everybody's always mad. And uh, I just thought, you know, I, I really would like to get into a more of a transactional type practice. Uh, I met uh, a mentor 
um, and started working with him. And um, I really liked this area a lot. It was really, you know, helping people put deals together and figuring out how to split money with investors and structure deals. And at the same time, uh, the reason that I met uh, my mentor was because my husband and I were actually learning how to buy multifamily. We went to uh, an RE mentor real estate uh, training event. Uh, I think that was their multifamily millions and then uh, decided, well, gee, I should, you know, we should um, really learn how to do this well. We got into a coaching program and uh, we ended up buying and uh, syndicating our own multifamily property with some friends. And uh, so then I just, you know, started doing this area of the law and decided that I really liked it. Started working with a lot of syndicators had a lot of uh, clients that became returning clients and you know gaining ever more success um, so I just thought it was a really cool thing and uh, decided to make it my practice cool you really took it full circle there with uh, the re mentor folks and first you started attending and now you're exhibiting so you know yeah yeah well that and I, and I do some training for them too in their uh, private money boot camps that's awesome. That's awesome. That's uh, great when you can make that happen. So let's get into the topic, how to legally raise private money. We're mainly talking about syndications, right? And, and, and what people can do. So I suppose let's just get into what are the biggest mistakes that people are making today that you're seeing happen? Well, you know, when people are first starting out, they have a tendency to, you know, unless you come from a background where you've been dealing with investors in the past, uh, and certainly some people have that background, but unless you come from that background, it's, it's uncomfortable. So you start looking for the easy way out. You know, we all want to sit in our basements in our pajamas and surf the internet and find that perfect investor. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that uh, doesn't pan out. It uh, more often than not doesn't doesn't work out. Um, you know, you might find some real folks that have a lot of money that say they would be interested if, uh, but there's a whole lot of ifs, and uh, usually the final if uh, comes down right before closing, and and they often uh, disappear. So you know, don't do that. You can raise a whole <laughs> lot of money from people, fifty or hundred thousand dollars at a time, if you take the time to get to know them and talk to them about their investment goals and what you're doing, and uh, find some compatibility, stay in touch, and uh, then you know, when you got deals, share your deals with them. That's the best tried and true method of finding and keeping investors. Okay, so I go to a lot of events, events like Ultimate Partnering. And frequently, I would say <laughs> I come home to find myself on a couple of people's deal list pretty quickly after talking with them for, you know, 10 minutes at whatever the event might be. And suddenly, you know, they consider us to have a, a substantive pre-existing relationship when they might not really know anything about me. And we've never had any kind of interaction outside of meeting at this event event. Granted, they didn't hit me up about their in, their investment opportunity at the event, but they didn't follow up after that. Where do you think that falls? Does that put up any red flags for you? Well, you know, as an attorney, we're always, uh, we're trained to Cautious. say it depends, right? <laughs> yeah. say it depends, right? And so it, it does depend. It depends on two things. One, uh, you know, there are um, the securities exemptions that do allow people to freely advertise their deals. Um, uh, the only people that can invest in those deals are verified accredited investors, but they can advertise them to anybody. 
So they wouldn't necessarily have to know you and have had a conversation with you before they started advertising those deals to you, with, to you. However, the flip side of that is how likely are you to invest with them after a 10 minute conversation and no follow-up? You know, well, probably not. Not very. Yeah. Um, but most people at those events are trying to meet people that they can put into deals that don't allow advertising. Um, so, you know, maybe we should just talk a little bit about what those exemptions are and, and the differences. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm really pointing that question. I probably should have specified at 506B syndications, which cannot be publicly right. advertised. Right. Right. So just, you know, uh, to give you uh, your audience, the 30 second primer on, um, you know, when they have to follow securities laws, uh, basically if you're raising money from passive investors, uh, then you're selling something called an investment contract that, that applies whenever you're selling interests in a company, um, notes, if you're doing repeated sales of promissory notes to people in order to raise money that also, those also are securities. So in both those instances, uh, you know, most of the people at the events you're talking about are going to be selling off interests in a company and uh, raising cash that way. Uh, when you're doing that, you have passive investors, you're selling securities. Uh, when you're selling securities, you have to follow securities laws. Uh, that means um, you either have to register your offering by getting pre-approval from regulatory agencies before you can make offers to anybody or you have to qualify for an exemption from registration and every exemption has its own set of rules and restrictions. So um, these are self-executing exemptions, meaning that you have to keep track and keep records on how you complied with the rules of the exemption that you're gonna claim. Uh, so I mentioned just a minute ago that there was an exemption that would allow you to freely advertise, but you can only sell to verified accredited investors. That's the Regulation D Rule 506C exemption. Uh, the one that most people are doing still, uh, according to SEC statistics and also our, you know, from our own client base, is Regulation D Rule 506B. And it's certainly people that are starting out uh, should be looking at the Regulation D Rule 506B. Why? Because that's the one that allows you to invite your friends and family um, or people whom you have substantive pre-existing relationships. You get to invite those people to invest with you. Um, so the 506B rules are that you uh, can raise an unlimited amount of money from an unlimited number of accredited investors and up to 35 non-accredited investors. All investors must be sophisticated. So you have to actually you know, ask them about their past investing experience. Um, and, the way, and you're not allowed to find them through any means of general advertising or solicitation. So therein lies the problem with meeting someone for 10 minutes at an event and then having them start email blasting you. Um, the SEC has defined what that pre-existing substantive relationship means. So pre-existing means that it predates your offering. So it predates the time at which your offering was uh, current or contemplated. So certainly by the time you have your securities attorney drafting your offering documents, you have a contemplated deal. And the time when you have your offering documents in your hand, you have a current offering. So if you're still meeting people when you have a current or contemplated offering, you probably shouldn't be putting them into that deal. You should be meeting them, getting to know them, putting them maybe in a future deal if they're suitable. But the substantive part of the relationship was defined by the SEC in 2016 
And they said that it's more about the quality of the relationship than the quantity of time that you've known somebody or the fact that you've just met them casually at an event and exchanged contact information. So the quality of the relationship that they want to see is that you actually know enough about that investor to understand their financial situation and to have asked about some of their previous investing history and their investing goals to determine whether they're suitable to be in your offering. And so that's where you have to be. <laughs> Sorry, I have a cat walking around like Oh, that's no worries. I have to lock my cat. Yeah, really. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> um, but um but anyway, so the suitable, uh, the substantive relationship, you have to be able to prove that by a record keeping system showing that you not only met that person, but you had further conversation with them about their suitability to be in your offering. And then after you've had that suitability conversation, uh, it would be appropriate for you to start making offers to them, you know, preferably after a little bit of a passage of time. So it's, it is, you know, there is a process that you have to go through. If people want to know more about it, we actually have an article on our website at syndicationattorneys.com called Determining Suitability or Determining Investor Suitability that actually explains the SEC's rationale and how they arrived at it and what kind of questions you might want to ask some investors and keep some records of those, those conversations. Great. Determining suitability. What do they consider an acceptable record keeping? I mean, a lot of people have maybe a CRM that they might be using or, you know, I don't know, some people use Google Sheets that never, <laughs> never worked for me. It, it, I couldn't make it work. But, you know, are there any examples given of what can work as a record keeping system? You can use whatever you want. I mean, people for years have used Excel spreadsheets before CRMs became so popular, but um, you know, there's a variety of CRMs out there. You know, the good starter one that I used for a long time was is Insightly, which is a Google app. And it, at that time when I was using it, it was free for two people. So it allows you to keep track of people, keep, tra keep notes about conversations, uh, keep track of when you send things to them, you know, just to show all the steps you took in developing that relationship. You touched on something during that last little segment that it's a question that comes up on Bigger Pockets occasionally, where if I have, and it actually, I, I, I was on a thread about this just before we got on the call, this very topic. So if I'm buying a, this is an example from the thread, buying a $2 million property, and I have a handful of investors that would invest fifty dollars to $100,000 a piece. So probably need maybe a total of five hundred grand to close this deal, just to put a number on it. I need to raise sure. $500,000. At what point can I no longer do promissory notes to each of my investors and I don't have to do a private placement memorandum and it w kind of where's the line between that well, and I do have to do one. So I would argue that there is no point that even uh, doing those promissory notes to your investors is a securities offering. So the minute that your business starts to depend on raising money from private investors, you know, if you want to borrow some money from your parents to go put a down payment on a house, nobody cares, right? Uh, you know, regulators yeah. aren't going to regulate that. 
Um, but when you start going to your real estate investment association meetings and you're talking to everybody there about, you know, loaning money to you for all these uh, fix and flip houses that you're buying and things like that, you're selling securities there too. And you really should be following the same securities laws and the same uh, exemptions that you would if you were selling interest in a company. Um, the determining factor for when promissory notes are not going to work in a deal is if you're going to be using uh, an institutional loan to buy a property. If you're buying a loan that's, uh, that's going to be guaranteed by uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, or uh, most commercial lenders, they're going to have prohibitions in the loan agreement that says that you will not allow any subordinate debt. And they're going to be asking you where all the money came from to buy the property. And they're going to want to see the list of investors and their percentage interests. And, and your op they're going to review the operating agreement to make sure that they are bona fide uh, percentage interests in your company. They will allow that, but they will not allow you to show them a pile of promissory notes and say, well, I borrowed it from all these people because now you got seven people standing in line behind them uh, with uh, potential liens against that property and they won't allow that. Uh, you know, if you're dealing with single family residential properties, those lenders aren't uh, as, uh, you know, either savvy or picky about it. And so they don't really, you know, seem to enforce it. But uh, if you're dealing with institutional loans, you'll never be able to do it. Yeah, great. And those, those seven people are all in line behind the bank and each of the seven one is behind the other, right? They each have well, different yeah. lean positions. Well, or or you could issue, I mean, you technically you can issue notes of equal priority and, uh, you know, then it becomes a race to the bank to see who gets there first if, if you stop paying. Um, you know, or, or another choice would be to do use a fractional note where you have, you know, those seven people all buy a piece of a note to equal the whole amount that you need and they each have their requisite percentage interest. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a note expert. So I'd like to go back to uh, kind of the question from, from the top and focus on some of the mistakes that you see people making today in the syndication world. I'm sure that the topic of your book, how to legally raise private money is a bit, it's a bit predicated upon, all right, well, there are obviously people doing it illegally. So I'm going to write the guide of how to do it legally. So what are some yeah. of the mistakes that you see happening? Well, you know, I mean, we talked about the fact that you're looking for the single investors that usually don't come through. Um, or if they do come through, then they change the terms on you right at the 11th hour and you don't want to do the deal anymore. Uh, I've just seen that happen so many times over the years when, whenever someone comes to me and says, uh, you know, I've got a single investor that's going to take on the whole deal. My advice is keep raising money uh, because the more money you raise, the less you need that person. And when you get around to the point where you're saying, you know, you're going to invest or not, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter whether they do. And, and, you know, don't count somebody as an investor until their money's in your bank, in your company's bank account. And so once you have your securities offering documents in hand and you've set up your company's bank account, you can legally start raising money. You know, it's first come first serve. And so you just tell those people, you know, well, that's nice. So as soon as you want to, you know, deposit your money, then we'll count you in as an investor until then we're raising money. Um, that's, that's, you know, the biggest mistake. Other, there's clearly a lot of other mistakes. Um, you know, one of them is uh, waiting too long to hire your securities attorney. You know, we get a lot of people who are, um, 
you know, they're reluctant to hire an attorney and to begin to incur fees until they're 100% certain that they're going forward with the, uh, with the property. So they'll wait until they're completely done with their due diligence. They've got, you know, maybe uh, too short of a closing time. That's another mistake that they make. And all of a sudden they come to us. Well, the first time drafting documents, uh, you know, you're going to get your documents within a week or so, but uh, you still have to review them. You have to make sure they're correct. It's 140 pages of legal documents. Then we have to incorporate comments. And it's very common to go through two rounds of revisions before you get final documents. So, you know, that whole process can take, you know, two to four weeks uh, for your first offering. It's going to be probably three to four weeks. So you want to make sure that you have enough time for your securities attorneys to draft your documents. And, uh, you know, so you usually want to do that during the due diligence process. So, you know, I always say hire us when you have a property under contract. Uh, so you got to have a signed purchase and sale agreement. You've physically been, you or someone from your team has physically been to the site and driven through the neighborhood surrounding it and saying, yeah, okay, we could buy this. Um, and you've reviewed the financials. Uh, so, you know, I say contact us when you've got the signed purchase and sale agreement, pull the trigger, get us going as soon as you've done those three things, because those are the three things that are most likely to kill the deal. Um, most other things that you might find during your inspection of the property and things like that, or maybe your lease audits, th those are going to be things that you can use to negotiate the price, but not necessarily going to kill the deal. So, so that, you know, it's always a balance between getting us going and, and, uh, and waiting too long, but you know, waiting too long to start raising the money will kill your deal because your investors will feel rushed. And I've seen, I've, I've had recently know people that have not been able to close on deals because they weren't able to raise the money. Wow. Um, yeah. And then the other big mistake is not taking time to get to know investors and to develop those relationships. You really have to do that. Um, you know, you've, you've got to do the legwork. There's no shortcuts. You know, the only shortcut is maybe bringing in some rock star that's got experience raising money onto your team, um, you know, and delegating the duties amongst your management team. So, you know, some of the people are doing due diligence, some people are finding deals, some people are, you know, talking to investors, you know, that might work to try to accelerate your money raising process. But there's no substitute for developing healthy face-to-face -face investor relationships. So, so I always say, you know, find investors locally, but find your properties where they make sense. You know, and it may not be in your local market. If you live in Southern California or New York City, you know, you may not be able to find a deal that's going to make sense right now. But, um, you know, you, you got to... You got to just figure out where you can meet investors locally and start showing up at those places again and again, taking the time to have some conversations, have that difficult suitability conversation early on and just, you know, tell people, look, you know, this is not, I'm not prying into your information. I don't really care, uh, but I've got to ask these questions before I can invite you into my deals. Nice. I mean, at least in those markets, Southern California, New York City, some of the higher end markets, you should definitely be able to forge those relationships over time that you can you can get the money piece and then in other areas you should uh, be looking for the properties I, I don't know how people are doing it uh in investing in those areas it seems like uh probably not super profitable 
Well, you get a lot of you got a lot of foreign money that comes in, and they don't care so much about the return. They want the investment, you know, maybe to to get a green card or get their kid to get a green card, or you know, or they just want to get it out of their country. Yeah, and we can get a much better return in other markets. So, absolutely, um, it absolutely makes sense. Now, you've been practicing syndication law throughout this uh, this current market cycle that we've had and things have changed over the last few years. I'm curious how things have changed from your perspective, not necessarily um, based on the SEC putting out opinions, but at least from observing your clients in the changes that they've had to make in to raise money, at least in a in an execution sense. What are your thoughts there? Or, you know, maybe I should leave the question open to, uh, to the SEC's opinions on this. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't. Well, no, I mean, I think there, there's absolutely been some changes in the market. You know, the uh, people that jumped in and bought right after the last market correction uh, have done really, really well. You know, some of our clients have, you know, doubled and tripled their money on certain properties. Um, they, they've done extremely well. They bought when, you know, the prices took the downturn, you know, when they lost value. And so, you know, what happened during that time is that Fannie Mae and uh, Freddie Mac never stopped lending money on multifamily. And so there might have been some other asset classes that uh, slowed down a little bit more than the multifamily, but the multifamily kept going. And um, as long as people were able to get loans, they were getting lower loan to value loans. So they were maybe getting, you know, 65, 70% loans for a little while. And then it started to creep up again to the, you know, 80, uh, 75 and 80% loans that uh, you're, you're seeing again today. Um, but now they're starting to be a tightening up of the market again. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's harder right now for people to find good deals. I see more deals falling out and I see less deals happening than were happening uh, in 2009, 2010, 2011. But, you know, as far as, uh, you know, for our business, it was, it was uh, good, you know, because we had, you know, people kept buying deals, people kept uh, raising money. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Another topic I wanted to touch on with you was, I feel like this isn't brought up too often, and I'm not sure people really understand, conditioning the market for syndicators and, and what that really means for people who are out there you know, generating content or, or kind of putting the word out there. There is, it seems to me, there's a pretty, I don't want to say fine line, but there's there's some spectrum in there between talking about your business in a compliance sense and then blowing your exemption by conditioning the market. So can you define that for us and then, you know, help help me understand that a little bit better? Yeah, I, I don't think, uh, you know, I think I like to speak from more the practical terms. And so... I think you do have to do some conditioning of your market to explain to people what kind of a market we're in right now. You know, I think it's important. One of the ways that you can meet people for 506B offerings and get to know them well enough that you can invite them into your future deals is by holding generic educational events. I think it would be completely appropriate to hold a generic educational event that talks about how uh, preferred returns have changed over time. You know, where, you know, they maybe a few years ago, people were offering, uh, you know, nine and 10% preferred returns on certain deals. And now, 
you're seeing people, it's contracting a little bit. And, and I'm seeing some people who are doing, you know, five, six, five or 6% in the early years and, uh, you know, going up to seven or eight in later years of a deal. Um, so I think it is important to train your investors that the markets change. Um, there were times when people were uh, projecting overall annual returns in the 20% range, and they were getting them on certain properties. Uh, now we're not in that market. We're in the mid-teens. And But if you compare and contrast that to what you might earn on a stock market investment, it's still a good investment. So you just have to tell people, hey, the, those days aren't here. They may come back, but if you still want to do deals and you still want to get a good, good return, it's still a good time to invest. We just have to you know, wait for the, you know, the really great deals to come back again. They're not out there right now. Not in the multifamily space. There are some other spaces I think are under, under uh, maybe uh, performing a little bit better and they're you know, maybe under marketed. You know, people aren't, or they may be undersaturated is the right word to say. You know, in the multifamily space right now, I think that there's a lot of saturation in the market of, uh, you know, there's a lot of trainers teaching people how to buy multifamily and, uh, you know, they're, they're flooding the market. And in some ways, maybe in the, you know, just by having that many people out there looking, they're driving the prices up. In addition to the fact that prices are just, you know, generally going up because that's the part of the market cycle we're in right now. Um, if there's a correction, you know, those that poise themselves now and do a few deals now and get some experience so that when there is a correction that they can hit the ground running, will be well poised to take advantage of uh, any corrections in the near future. Yeah, it's hard to say, I think in, in, in many sense, kind of what you alluded to, I mean, how much is our current state of the market due to kind of a, I don't want to say irrational exuberance because I'm still an investor myself, but an exuberance about where the economy is versus just the fact that the economy is, at least as we talk right now, it might change by the time this is published, but the economy is pretty good. People are still working. Things are still sure. headed up. And I mean, the, the Fed is, again, as we talk, they've recently cut rates a little bit. So there could be signs of some negative things on their horizon, but it doesn't look like we're at the door of the next, you know, 2008 style Great Recession. Well, and I think a lot of that hinges on what happens in the next presidential election. You know, and that, you know, one way or another, it will change things. So, you know, I think everybody has to be prepared because we don't know and we can't predict. Yeah, that's definitely true. I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. But. Uh, no, and I don't want to get into a philosophical discussion about that either, but it's just a reality of the, of the world we're in right now that uh, it will have an impact one way or another. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are there any other important lessons that we should get to before we move on to the second part of the show? I mean, it's it's hard to get time with uh, well-qualified attorneys. We've got you right now. I definitely want to just to ask you, what's on your mind and, and what do you want to get out there for, I don't know, the, the, the volume two of how to legally raise private money? You know, volume two is how to uh, develop relationships with investors. That is the least understood skill of all of the syndicators that I've met. Uh, you know, I think that the trainers that are out there are doing a really great job of teaching people the mechanics of finding deals and doing the analyzing deals and, you know, getting them to the closing table. But the, you know, the elusive 
part is how do I get those investors so they're ready when I need them? And the only way you do that is to dedicate yourself to meeting as many people as you can and developing relationships with those people. And if you're not the kind of person that wants to do that, then you have to team with somebody who is. You know, so creating a team of people that have the right skill sets, you know, and realizing that this is a bifurcated business. You know, one part of the business is finding and getting the deals and overseeing the deals. The other part of the business is uh, finding and developing relationships and, and uh, dealing with your investors. And once you master that, uh, those that do master that and create, you know, the marketing systems that are necessary to sustain those relationships, those are the people that uh, that really do well for the long term. Um, but those that don't take the time and, the, and you know, create the databases and um, figure out a way to keep in contact with people through newsletters and drip systems and, and all of that stuff, those people are, are left behind because they get to a point where they, they don't have enough investors. And then they start making kind of dumb decisions. Um, you know, some of the decisions that, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about, oh, well, I just bring in these capital raisers. And, uh, you know, when you start bringing in people whose job is to raise money for you, then you start uh, treading in some very dangerous waters from a securities perspective, because it's illegal to pay finders who are outside of your group to, or outside of your company to raise money for you unless they have a securities license. And it endangers not just them, it doesn't endanger them because they're doing technically acting as an unlicensed broker, but it also endangers the syndicator who pays them because they're in danger of losing their exemption for paying unlicensed brokers. And in both cases, you know, the, the, uh, the penalties can be dire. You know, there can be huge fines, there can be litigation, there can be investor lawsuits, there can be forced rescissions where you're forced to give everybody's money back. Um, you could be banned from ever raising money again. So whatever job you had before, you know, dust it off and go back into it, whether you like it or not, because you still got to make a living and you can't do this anymore. So, you know, it's not worth taking a chance, you know, read the book. Um, we actually created a, a spinoff division from our law firm that called investormarketingmaterials.com that creates investor marketing materials so that you know these uh, you know syndicators and people who are wanting to get in this business people who've been in the business and just need to step up their game have professionally edited and designed marketing materials to hand to their investors when they meet them face to face so that they can compete with some of the bigger private equity funds and uh, hedge funds and the other people who are out there with big marketing budgets Interesting. So investormarketingmaterials.com, that'll be in the show notes for anybody who doesn't feel like punching that in. You just want something to, uh, <laughs> to click on. Um, so have you seen or, or is there anything on the horizon with regard to the SEC taking action on this? I mean, one example right now in my market of Richmond, Virginia, there's a gentleman uh, in being taken to court by the SEC for, now he was allegedly committing fraud, which is mm -hmm. very different from uh, unregistered broker dealer type of, type of situation. But the point, the point of that statement is that the SEC is out there taking action and acting on investor complaints. Are you seeing them taking action or looking at, or I mean, you don't have a crystal ball, right? But are they looking at this right now? 
What do you what do you see? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because it seems like every year the SEC determines kind of towards the beginning of the year what's going to be their focus for the year. You know, a few years a few years ago it was insider trading, and uh, you know, so they they pick what's going to be their passion for the year, and then they start to really dig into it. And uh, you know, uh, I haven't seen them pick this as their target yet. Um, you know, I don't know that they will in the near future, but it's always a possibility. But it's not just the SEC that you have to worry about. You know, the SEC usually goes after the big fish. You know, the people that really steal a lot of money. Um, <laughs> just watch American Greed, right? It seems like they, they only get to go after people that raise 15, that steal $15 million or more or some, you know, some crazy number. But you know who goes after the little guys are the state securities regulators. Every single state has its own securities agency and they will go after people for small stuff. I've seen them send letters to people. They're like, hey, you borrowed money from two people in our state. Tell us what exemption you used to do that and show us all the paperwork that shows you had the right to do that. We don't have any record of you filing in our state. Um, you know, so along with having the right securities offering documents, uh, you also have to do filing. So, you know, be careful if there's any do-it-yourselfers out there or people who are, uh, you know, oh, I'll just grab somebody else's documents and change them for my deal. Uh, that's, uh, that's a minefield. Um, there are securities notice filings. They have very strict deadlines. Uh, you have to file notices with the SEC and then also in the states where your investors claim residency and you have 15 days from when their funds become irrevocably committed to do that. And uh, if you don't, then uh, they can you know, say, hey, well, you didn't follow our rules, which required you to file this notice with us within 15 days. So therefore, you don't get the exemption in our state. And uh, now we're going to do an enforcement action. Wow. Mm -hmm. What is considered to be uh, funds being a irrevocably committed is that closing on the property well it depends on what you say in the what's said in the offering documents because the offering this is from the sec they said it you know the offering documents if they're silent on the issue then the sec is going to take the most conservative approach and they're going to say when you receive the funds right but if you you know write it into your documents that say or you know it's written into your documents that say that you know the funds aren't considered irrevocably committed until we close on the property because up until that point if somebody came to us and said we need our money back something's happened then you'd give it you know and you'd find another investor and uh, you know as long as that's the case those funds are not irrevocably committed until you close on the deal but certainly the point at which you've used them and if somebody came to you and said i really need to get out can you help me and you had to say, I'm, I'm sorry, the money's invested in the deal. It certainly has happened at that point. Wow. So that's definitely good to know. I did not, I mean, I did not know the, obviously it makes sense about when people would say, oh, I need to get my money back. Um, when you could say in the documentation, your funds are committed the day we get them or the day the property is closed or something else like that. It makes sense. Obviously, somebody says, I need my money back, and then you have that on the paper. Sorry, no, this is what you agreed to. We can't do it. I didn't know that on the securities uh, regulation. And so that's definitely good to know. But I also don't, you know, this is why we hire securities attorneys. So I actually right, don't but need we're to know not, this. But we're not sitting next to you in your office, so we True. don't often know what happens, you know. So, you know, we're trying to beat it out of people to have them send us their list of investors after closing. And saying, look, you know, we've got to get these things filed, or you're going to lose the exemption, and all the money you paid us, and all the things that you've done to comply with the laws is going to be for naught. 
you know, and, and, you know, the rule 506 exemption is, is considered a safe harbor. You don't necessarily have to file the notice in with the SEC to be able to claim the exemption, but it just becomes a bigger burden because it's like, well, you didn't do this. What else didn't you do? You know, so now you've got a, an uphill battle, whereas if you did it in the first place and you complied with the law, then you'd have uh, an easier time in convincing them that, uh, you know, you complied as well as you could in all respects. And, and again, the states, here's what the states want. They want the notice, but they also have fees associated with their filings. They want the fees. You know, so their rules say, hey, we'll allow the Rule 506 exemption in our state as long as you comply with all the rules of the 506 exemption and you file a notice with our, in our state whenever you sell, uh, sell uh, securities to investors in our state and you do it within our time frame. So as long as you do that, and, and you know, they've made it fairly easy to do it. Uh, so, you know, some states still require paper filings and a check be sent, but very few. Most of them have gone to an electronic system where it's all in, you know, one place. We just go and we check the box of, you know, what the states are and, and uh, they tell us what the fees are. And then, and then we are able to just file the notices, you know. Wow. But uh, the other thing is uh, realizing that, um, you know, you can't raise money forever your offering usually has some uh, stop deadlines, right? It's usually going to be written in and the SEC is going to require that if you're going to keep raising money for more than one year, that you have to do an amended filing and let them know. And that has to be filed before the anniversary of your, of your offering. And that anniversary is going to start, you know, usually it's going to be the date on the front cover of your private placement memorandum. Just taking a note on that. That's definitely... <laughs> Good to know for some specific reasons that are in my head. So great. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right. So I've got three questions. We ask every guest on the show. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. All right. First one, what is the best investment you ever made? Hmm. Um, certainly I think the, the, the RE mentor training that I got, uh, you know, paved the way for me to come into this area of the law. So I would say that that was a really good investment for me. Yeah, it's a great organization. I mean, they're, they're one of the biggest, especially in the syndication space. And, and if you got in, if I recall, uh, from what you said to around 2009, I mean, that was kind of the seven thousand eight. Wow. That was yeah. for my understanding, pretty much the ground floor ish of, yeah. uh, that. Yeah. That's great. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment you ever made? Well, I bought, I bought a, a rental house in Cleveland uh, with the idea that my stepdaughter was going to manage it as a vacation rental. Did that, uh, do you still have it? Did that not pan <laughs> it's, out? It's, it's actually in escrow right now and it's supposed to close in December. <laughs> so you're, you're about to be free of it. By the time yeah, this goes but, live, you'll absolutely. But the other really weird and interesting thing about that is that there, one of the reasons we, the reason that we actually even bought the house was uh, because we had a property in Ohio that we needed to refinance and no lenders would talk to us. It was in Columbus. And uh, so we, we bought this property just kind of out of the, the fluke. Uh, and uh, then all of a sudden, all these lenders are like, oh, you have property in Ohio? Well, we'll give you a loan. So we were able to get our other property refinanced because we owned a different house. We, you know, we had to buy a house to get a property refinanced. Wow. True story. <laughs> Sometimes the, the hoops you have to jump through can be onerous. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> or silly. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah, but you know, it did cost me dearly over the years. <laughs> I, 
I've in blood, sweat, and tears. Trust me. <laughs> well, uh, by the time this goes live, you will have sold that property. So if you come back and listen to this, congratulations, you're Thank out you. of it. <laughs> Thank you. So well done. We also sold the other property in Ohio too, and that was pretty good to get rid of. So nice. uh, good. We, yeah, that was an interesting uh, lesson. Was it uh, related to buying in Ohio, do you think? I mean, I'm hesitant about the rust belt myself. It, it was timing. Well, first of all, I came from Michigan, so I, I was hesitant about, about investing there myself. <laughs> um, you know, the people there are fantastic, but the opportunities are unique and interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, we learned a lot of lessons about investing in Ohio, but we happened to buy that property in 2008, so the timing was really mm. bad. And, uh, you know, we, we, we kept it for years and years and it did okay. It, you know, at times it required <laughs> some, some, uh, funds from us that we were you know, it's like, Oh, I don't want to do that again, but we did. And, uh, eventually we all, we sold it and we, we made some money and we paid off our investors and they made some money. So everybody was happy. But, uh, yeah, my, my husband was the one who managed that for nine years. Wow. And, uh, you know, it, it was a, it was an ordeal. Wow. And you have invest, investors in the deal too. So that makes the ride even, uh, even rougher because if you're, you know, having a hard time, I, I don't know if you're, I hate to put it this way, but if you're losing your own money, it's one thing. If you're losing somebody else's money, it's uh, way worse. Yeah. Well, and these were really great friends, you know, so Oof. it's like, you know, we, we don't, and they were, they were wonderful, but, uh, you know, wonderful and patient. Uh, so, so it all worked out and we learned some important lessons about that property as well. Well, that's good. That leads to my favorite question. The last one, what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? You know, perseverance, you really, you know, you need to, to spend a lot of time learning and continuing education and continuing to get out there and meet as many people as you can. Uh, you know, every time I meet somebody new, I learn something new from them. I, every time I read a new book, I learn something new and all of these things help, you know, just invigorate you, keep you interested and, and keep you moving forward. And I think all of that's very important, but I would say also having a coach, you know, having a coach in different aspects of your life. I have a law firm coach. Um, you know, it's, it's been very important. Nice. The, I, I found that the most successful people I know, one, they read a lot and two, they tend to have a lot of coaches, not all of yeah. them, but most of them have a few coaches. Yes. Yeah. And I can see that. Yeah. Something they don't teach you in school. That's for sure. Is you need to no. keep learning. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today and all the lessons. Where can people get in touch with you, learn more, you know, pick up a copy of the book, all that oh, stuff. Oh gosh. Uh, you know, our website at syndicationattorneys.com has a library that is chock full of all kinds of articles, uh, frequently asked questions, uh, recorded tele-seminars. We do a free monthly tele-seminar. In fact, we're going to be doing one uh, on this Thursday. So we do these free monthly uh, tele-seminars. If you want information about that, you can email uh, info at syndicationattorneys.com and we'll get you the invitation to that. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of information there. There's also a way to get a free copy of the book. Uh, if you want a free digital copy of the book, you can get that at syndicationattorneys.com. Uh, while you're there, uh, click on the link that says, uh, uh, 
what is it, what is it called now? It's the online store. Click on the link for the online store and that's gonna take you to the investormarketingmaterials.com. If you don't have a deal right now, this is when you should start working on your investor marketing materials and developing your investor relationships. And uh, we even have a, like a, you know, a very low cost program where you can become a client and we can start coaching you on developing those investor relationships through our Facebook live group. So, you know, we've got a lot of opportunities. Uh, so most of it you can find through our website, syndicationattorneys.com. And you can also make an appointment with us there too. Cool. That's a lot. There's going to be a lot of links in the show notes. So a lot of great options there. Uh, thanks again for all the lessons today and uh, taking some time with us. It's, it's evening time that we're recording this. So thanks for burning the midnight oil with me. All right. Thank you, Taylor. It was my <laughs> pleasure. Happy to talk with you again. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's a very big help. If you know anyone that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, if they want to learn more about real estate syndication, please share the show with them and bring them into the fold. Once again, thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we will talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.